0: Hi, this is uh, Roger Horowitz of the uh, Hagley uh, Library uh, coming to you with another episode of Hagley History Hangout, where we bring to you interviews with authors and researchers who have made use of our collections and done really interesting things with that work. Uh, Today, uh, we're with uh, Wendy Wallison, who is a longtime friend of Hagley and currently the acting chair of the Department of History at Rutgers University, Camden. Wendy, thank you for coming and talking with us today.
1: Thank you for having me this is very exciting.
0: Well uh, I'm as you know I've been looking forward to this book for a long time. <laughs> uh, the, book, so uh, the book is called uh, Crap and the subtitle is A History of Cheap Stuff in America. Uh, Wendy has done some papers at Hagley about that so um, this is great uh, for her to be able to talk about it. Um, so let me ask you to start off one day. Tell us what inspired you to write this book. Or what questions drove you to engage in this, this project?
1: Sure. So, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I am a scholar of material culture and consumer culture, especially in the 19th century. Um, and the more research I did, the more... I became, frankly, kind of frustrated by what I was finding in the literature, particularly about material culture studies. Um, You know, I'd read these great, lavishly illustrated books on, say, Fabergé eggs or Chippendale chairs or masterworks. And, And that's great. You know, there's nothing wrong with those objects or the study of those objects. But, you know, I came to think, well, this These objects were rarefied things and not the things that ordinary people surrounded themselves with or indeed what most of us have in our own homes today. And, you know, I thought it was really curious that nobody had taken these very prosaic objects more seriously and interrogated um, what they meant to people in the past, especially, um, you know, as the consumer revolution was unfolding. And what they mean to us today. And so I just started to um, get more curious about that and, and wanted to dig into that a little bit more. Um, and also to better understand not just the ma- material objects themselves, but, you know, a kind of to understand like the intellectual history, if you will, of ordinary people, um, which I think was often recorded in their things, or at least that's the evidence that we have left of um, this kind of intellectual history.
0: So it's sort of a history of popular material culture.
1: Right, just or, ordinary goods for ordinary people. And it struck me that like, nobody had really done this before. Um, and so it wasn't, to be clear, it wasn't just the, the novelty of the project that attracted me to it, but I really felt like we need to understand more about Um, the things that surround our lives today and and the history, the deeper, much deeper history um, of of those things, where those things came from and how we came to be um, the consumers that we are today.
0: Well, for half appropriately, I do see Elvis on your right shoulder there, holding up the book
1: uh,
0: there, Uh, there you go. I mean-
1: And he's he's flocked, this is like a Velveteen flocking that, you know, it's like, I love this thing. (laughs)
0: Well, before I ask you the big, the big, bigger questions, let's just talk about Elvis for a second here. You have an Elvis there and you love it.
1: Yeah.
0: Can you look at yourself as a consumer and say, why Elvis in this kind of setting, which of course is not something that you have a scholarly interest in or anything like that. Why Elvis? What? what Well,
1: I love this particular object because let's get him in camera because it's, because it's Elvis. So he's this iconic, American symbol. He's also been appropriated for very kitschy things. So, you know, he's got another um, layer of meaning here. And then this particular one is homemade. So he's got like his, see, you can see his features are like hand painted. And as I said, like, he's got this velveteen kind of finish. And then, you know, like, it's sort of slow. It's hard to see, but but you know, like there's paint that's been sort of, so, so it's kind of this, this quaint and sincere yet kind of crappy object. And I just, I just love him so much.
0: <laughs> Very appropriate. So let's so that's, that's, that's kind of you know, telescope this back out there. And, and can, sure. you, can you tell us what you mean by crap? And can you tell us some of the varieties of crap that you look at in your book? Those are two separate questions, but because one thing, which is, which is nice about your book among many things that's nice about your book is you break it down into some different varieties that you create some categories out of this broad term. Uh, Tell us kind of how you approach sorting out this notion of crap and giving it some sort of uh, definition.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So first, like, what do I mean by crap? And so for me, crap isn't like one particular thing, but it's a state of being of things. So, um, crappiness—the degree of crappiness—is, you know, in my mind, the um, the distance between what something promises and what it actually delivers. Um, so, these things are things that are often cheaply made things that promise to do like miracle we, we can talk about gadgets but you know like these miracle things that will will do these perform these things effortlessly effortlessly and easily um but like don't work very well or create more work um for you there are often things that we don't need that don't last very long and and often things that we don't even want but just kind of end up accumulating in our in our lives. And I'm speaking about this in the present tense, but this was, this was no less true for people in the past as well. Um, and the varieties of crap is actually, real, that question is related to your first question because things are crappy in different ways. And so um, the way that I chose to organize my book was really around genres of goods that are crappy in particular ways. So gadgets are um, over promise about function, mass produced collectibles over promise about value, um, and um, you know, cheap goods, variety goods, five and dime goods over promise about um, sort of economic value. Um, so I try to unpack the ways that these things are crappy in different you know, in, 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 their own, in their own ways. And I should also say that what I've tried to do too is, of course, crap is a very judgmental term, but I've tried to let the evidence and the people in the past speak for themselves. So I have tried to not put my own judgments on this stuff, but to really um, let, let people speak for themselves and speak for their own relationships to these goods.
0: So you want to be respectful of another person's Elvis, if you will. Yeah, for you know, why, sure. Why, why, why they might have those items that someone else might say, well, that's just a bunch of crap.
1: Right. And and so, yeah, to be sure, like what is crappy to me might not be crappy to you. So for me, what might be a useless gadget that ends up in my kitchen junk drawer um, for you is this, you know, great, like miracle garlic peeler or whatever. Um some sort of like give away, toss away, like little tape measure that's just you know really crappy. Like if you found that in your grandmother's sewing basket, that might be a really important heirloom for you. So in some ways, th- these are relative categories, but I think broadly speaking, they apply to a lot of people's relationships to a lot of goods.
0: A lot of goods. Well. Can you give a starting date for when, if I may say, crap happened? <laughs> um,
1: it's how far, actually how far, yeah. how far back? How far back can you get right. that crap go? It's it goes back much farther than we think. Um, so in the United States, I would say, um, well, the costume jewelry industry starts at the end of the eighteenth um, century. Um, so that goes pretty far back, and. and Unfortunately, I didn't have a lot of time to get into that in my book. But one of the things that I do talk about in my book is, like, after the War of 1812 and the embargo, um, you know, there's this this, um, glut of goods over, you know, in Great Britain that they can't sell to Americans. And then after the embargo ends, um, they start shipping the stuff to American shores in the early... Um, 1820s, late 18 teens, early 1820s. And this is stuff that has been, you know, stored up in warehouses over there um, that they haven't been able to to, um, sell to their own home markets because these are like textiles that the color fades or cutlery that a brittle metal because it hasn't been hardened properly you know, just like really cheap, shoddy stuff that they can't sell over there.
0: Right, crap, in other words. It's
1: crap, it's crap, right. But there's such a pent-up demand for those goods over here. Um, And because they offer, um, early merchants offer both variety and low price, they become really attractive things to Americans very early on. Um, And so the cheap goods stores, which are the, um, you know, the progenitors to like the five and dimes, those start to appear in um, American cities in, in the early 1820s, offering cheap variety goods um, for American consumers. And they, you know, consumers love this stuff.
0: So, so in a way, what you're saying is this becomes, this is at the, if you will, the birth of American consumer culture.
1: Yeah, I mean, I kind of think so, or at least the birth of kind of what I call the, you know, the throwaway culture. I mean, um, this this is sort of the, the, the origins of people's um, change in relationship from a more conservative relationship to the things that they own, um, where they care for things very carefully, they own very few objects that they pass down over generations. And those objects often perform various functions, You know, like your sturdy table might be your workshop during the day. And it might be the kitchen table at night. And maybe you fold it out and it becomes a bed um, that you sleep on. But then with this proliferation of cheap variety goods, people become enamored of this idea of novelty um, and want to they start to prefer new things over the old and so old things start to get cast off in favor of people looking ahead to these shiny new objects and because a lot of these things are affordable low priced um, it becomes less of a you know, a risk or a, like a literal investment that people need to make in these things. Um, and so if they do disappoint, that's kind of okay because people can just buy something else that's also cheap to replace it.
0: Right, so it's so what's involved here is not just the beginning of a consumer culture, but if you will, a, tr- a beginning of a transformation of a consumer culture mm-hmm. into a different kind of consumer mm-hmm. culture. That's, is that what you're, you're saying?
1: For sure, yeah, so people's relationships to um, their possessions radically changes, even very early on in the 1820s, 1830s. And that just sort of snowballs. you get these like cheap one-priced goods stores, um, and then, you know I mean, I'm sort of getting ahead, but then that turns into the five and dime. Fast forward, you know, then we have the dollar stores of today. Um, where we now we don't even expect to buy anything that's really of quality. Like, of course this thing's gonna be crappy. I got it at the dollar store.
0: Right, but we still, we still buy it. Well, um, one of these items that, that you talk about that has its roots in this period are gadgets. And I particularly love your focus on, on gadgets. Mm-hmm. It's one of your chapters. You know, That's yeah. one of the ways you break this down. So let's talk about gadgets for a little bit. Sure. Tell us what you mean by gadgets.
1: Well, gadgets are, you know, these tools that promise to do certain forms of labor effortlessly, quickly, easily, um, and they promise to solve um, problems of work and in that end up changing people's relationship to work. Um, why I say they're crappy is because they often don't live up to those promises. And those promises are often, um, as I said before, things that promise magic or miracles or, you know, effortless, whatever, weight loss or fixing your balding hairline or, um, you know, even something like peeling potatoes. A lot of these gadgets are um, are centered around the home and, in particular, the kitchen, and so they promise to do all of these things very quickly, very easily, but often don't work or create more work because you have to clean them or whatever. Or you know, one of my favorites is the multi-tools that promise to do like ten things in one, but don't really do any of them very well. Um, there's there's an illustration in my book for this thing that's both a hatchet and a hammer. And I think that you would actually like hurt yourself if you use this thing for either of those functions. But, but you know that is kind of the epitome of of gadgets is this sort of extreme utility, this extreme function um, that just negates itself. Most of these gadgets don't really work.
0: I mean, in terms of gadgets, especially I think about the multi-tool, yeah. because I've, I know these, these multi We all have
1: them. We all
0: well, have them. <laughs> so much of these, these items seem to be on the nature of gifts. In yes. other words, people who are actual handy and do work usually don't go out and buy multi-tools because they have all the tools, but all the multi-tools I have mm-hmm. or the multi-tools I've purchased are the result of gifts so I don't buy them for myself but I give them to somebody when you're at desperation so how is is gift giving part of this novel this this gadgetry thing I mean the individuals who want to solve the problem or is it people who feel that gifts are necessary who are part of part of that 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 market
1: I mean that's that's an an excellent question um and and now that you mention that, I think I like I have two or three multi tools, and they were they also came to me as gifts, um, <laughs> which like I'm not sure what, what to make of that. But yeah, I mean, um, and maybe the I I know this isn't what you were what you were getting at with your question, but um, multi tools are kind of the gadget version of gifts, like um, scented candles are. Like, I, you know, I talk about scented candles in another chapter, but that's also kind of a gift that we tend to give people who it's it's like a kind of a neutral um, but kind of like cra- kind of crappy thing. Or it represents, um, I mean, I'm hesitating here because this is a really interesting question and you've cast it in a way that I haven't quite thought about this before, Um but i think i think these kinds of objects especially if they come to us as gifts reflect or might reflect a kind of tenuousness of that interpersonal relationship it's a safe thing that i can give somebody that i either don't know very well or somebody who's hard to please i know that it's hard to give this person a gift so something like a multi tool or a scented candle has a certain kind of vanilla, if you excuse the pun, but like a vanilla neutrality that um, it's, yeah, it's a safe thing. And probably for that reason, it's kind of a crappy thing too, like materially and kind of psychically or emotionally. No no offense to the people who gave you your multi <laughs> That's
0: right. That's right. Or- or my stepfather never used the, the ones I gave him. Well, I mean, right. I mean I, I'm not, this is, this is actually not where I intended to end, but you make me think of the essay by Daniel Miller, A Theory of Shopping,
1: mm-hmm.
0: where he, one of the things he talks about with my favorite sections, he talks about people shopping in the supermarket. And the section is called Making Love in the Supermarket. And what he says is that he's an anthropologist, that people are buying things in the supermarket that they think the people whom they are buying them for should have. Mm-hmm. should do in other words that the, the mm-hmm. purchasing is a social act it's not and again this is very much against the idea that people just buy things because they want them well maybe so but so and so the gift giving forms such an important part of your story and gadgets so many of these gadgets seem mm-hmm. to be to be the kinds of items that someone who actually did the work would never purchase for themselves right. because they would have a better sense of what actually would be useful and it's part right. so that's why I, I really wonder about to what extent it's just sort of relationship of gift giving that facilitates these kinds of these kinds of transactions
1: yeah and you know um so i you know i don't really talk about gift giving in terms of gadgetry but where that becomes more to me more interesting is in the like the free giveaways the business gifts the advertising specialties you know the the swag call it whatever you want but um to me, that's that's a really interesting facet to this, where um, the market uh, um, inserts itself into this otherwise very intimate process of gift giving, um, in order to you know promote businesses and things things like that. So by the end of the 19th century, you get this whole new um, this this whole new kind of commodity, which is this business gift, which seems like an oxymoron, you know, business gift. But, um, you know, people, advertising experts like this guy, Henry Bunting, who who I love, um, and Hagley has some of his his works, um, wrote in like the 1890s about like entire books about advertising specialties and premiums, these giveaways and how they would like warm the heart of the recipient if you would give them this nominal thing. And he, he acknowledged that these things were crappy. He described them as being promiscuously distributed. So what's interesting to me is that his argument, and I think it's, I think it's a strong one, is that, that to form this, this relationship between producer and consumer or seller and buyer didn't require a special object to express that relationship or cement it. But it could be something as ephemeral as, you know, a paper fan's business name on it, a calendar. Um, He lists like 50 different things, change purses, um, paperweights, uh, letter openers, pens, pencils, you know, just this kind of crappy stuff. But he said like it it warms the heart of the receiver And it creates a loyalty from uh, between the customer and the business. And, um, and I think he really was onto something there. Um, yeah.
0: But one thing you, could, you talk about in this section about these, these, these giveaways is just how big this business is. Yeah. I mean, what's, how, give us some ideas just how it's like
1: It's a multi-billion dollar industry today that's global. Um, and you know, if, if you just think about the branded products that we have, that we, so what, one of the exercises that I do in my, um, when I teach consumer culture to my undergraduates is I make them all tally the brands that are on their person and like in their backpacks and stuff, like how many branded things do you have? And then I, you know, I get them to kind of better understand that like you, are a walking advertisement for these different entities, whether you are aware of that or not. And that's the beauty of these giveaways. And even, you know, the the industry even today says that it's something like 80% of the free things that we each get, we give away or we take to the thrift store, we, um, you know, We deaccession them, if you will. They don't care. In fact, they think that that's good because that is a way that we are helping to spread the word, the brand message of whatever business this is even further. And they don't have to do anything. So we become not just walking kind of billboards for companies, but we also spread their word
0: further. Well, I'm just. I just was inspired to, to look around my sure. desk, and I have here a pen, yeah. exhibit A, uh, Lambertville Station Restaurant and Inn, where my wife oh, and wow. I went a few years ago. Hanging around here, I have a cup from uh, Rutgers University that was given to me by Phil Scranton.
1: Good
0: for that. Um, I have a Hagley. So we have all this stuff that's around us, and one yeah. of the things I love is the way you say. The stuff around you is not just a pen with a crappy pen with a name on it or a cup that was repurposed, and given to you, but this is part of a larger phenomenon
1: yeah. that's
0: out there in the marketplace, which is very, very big.
1: Yeah. And and so, um, and what happened over time was that- the, or, there's, or
0: there's by Phillies. Sure. You know, there we right. are.
1: Exactly. Sometimes we, we buy them ourselves. Sometimes they're, you know, they're giveaways, but- you know, I've I've got I like to say free free stuff isn't free because, like if we if we go to the ball game to get the free giveaway you know um, cup travel cup like you have, we often go early to make sure we can get that promotion, which means we spend more at the concession stands and so on. Even if you think about this in the nonprofit world, if you think about it, sort of free stuff generating this these feelings of warmth and connection. Um, In the nonprofit world, sometimes that gets translated into guilt. So say the SPCA sends me a solicitation for a donation and they include this tote bag that like I didn't ask for, I didn't want. But then I start to feel kind of guilty because they gave me this gift and like I probably should at least send them some money. So even even for people like me who know better, um, like it works It psychologically, there's something very interesting about, you know, how, how these offers of free stuff get you to give away either money or personal information or, you know, what, whatever it is. Yeah.
0: Right. Don't look a gift horse. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. <laughs> right. There you go there. Um, well, let me ask you another category of, um, crap that you look at, which are novel, which are uh, novelties. Novelties. Uh, this is this is one of the one of the I think one of the really deep sections, although these are these are novelties are not the kind of things you think are deep. Um, what do you mean by novelties as a category of crap?
1: Yeah. So novelties, which I love, are um, like jokes and gags. So things like plastic vomit and exploding cigars and um, and fart powder And, um, you know, like snakes and cans and things, things that buzz and pop and explode and um, are supposed to cause levity, you know, humorous things and and so on. Yeah, that's what I mean by novelty. Well, you
0: you have I mean, you have quite a few wonderful phrases in this book. They're all my book is all dog-eared phrases. (laughs) And I think your best one, though, is about novelties. You describe them as the demons spawn, a Salvador Dali and Montgomery Ward, <laughs> uh, a wonderful phrase. And you go on to explain. What do you mean by that? You know, because that's a very that's a very complicated phrase, and one would not usually put Salvador Dali and Montgomery Ward right. in the same in the same uh, sentence.
1: Well, I've got you know I've got this thing about surrealism and how so so just to just to go back a little bit. So so novelty goods start showing up in merchandise catalogs in the eighteen seventies, and in fact. Um, Hagley has some really good novelty catalogs from like the Eureka Novelty Company and some other ones. And these things mostly came from Germany, um, eventually from Japan. Then there's a whole like global story about the sourcing of um, all sorts of forms of crap, um, which I know isn't what you asked me about. So novelties, um, but the point is that that novelties have a pretty early um, history as well. And um, they, you know, they come in the form of cheap merchandise, and they're particularly attractive to kids and especially boys who love pranking. Um, and they do these weird things. They make people kind of rethink their relationship to material objects. Um, you know, if you think about something like. A pack of gum that's actually made out of rubber, or um, the exploding cigar—you know—so so objects that you are familiar with and expect to behave in a certain way start misbehaving and start doing things that you don't expect them to do. And of course, that's that's why they're so attractive. They're fun to deploy onto other people to um, to perpetuate to perpetrate what I call these like petty violences on other people. Um, So novelty goods are are mean kinds of things, but I'm I'm getting around to um, your initial question about surrealism. So one of the things that I point out in the book is that um, decades before surrealism became a kind of popular or well-known artistic movement people who had bought novelty goods were already familiar with these weird, strange worlds of objects not doing what they expected them to do. And I think that's pretty interesting. Um, and you know, I'm not sure what we can make of that, except it goes back to my larger thesis about crappy things being contradictory goods. And in the case of novelties, these things that are seemingly the most ephemeral and the most clearly useless things are actually, I think, quite profound and revealing about our deeper-seated emotions and desires and fears and um, and aggression, also. Um, so.
0: Yeah. well let's let's talk about that aggression i mean you you, you towards the end of the chapter you, you kind of really get down on novelties you describe them <laughs> as as being spirited and corrosive well I mean this this is yeah. this, you know let's not just talk about the sunny side of these things I mean you have a right. story tell about how these novelties are not as sort of just gee whiz kind of funny there's, there's nothing else going on with these that you spend some time you know extracting
1: yeah, I mean, particularly the jokes and the pranks, um, you know, the like the fake um, ink spills on a table. You know, I've got a lot of um, illustrations from catalogs that show particularly men perpetrating these novelty, these jokes to women. And in particular, making fun of women's prescribed roles. So... Um, you know, there's a picture of a woman sort of freaking out about this ink that's spilled onto her beautiful table. Well, it's, you know, it's fake ink and it's, you know, a tipped over ink bottle and it's actually a piece of tin that's been colored and shaped to look like ink. But the point is that her domestic duties and all of her efforts are for naught. you know, it isn't that funny that I'm making fun of that. Or um, getting a woman a box of rubber chocolates for her birthday. That's hilarious, right? Um, You know, not really, or having the, the fake bandage and making fun, you know, fooling a woman into thinking something bad happened to you. And then, oh, isn't that funny that actually it didn't happen. And the gender component is really interesting. And again, these novelty catalogs are useful in showing us how people were expected to use these things. And when they're illustrated in action, it's almost always men doing things to women or boys doing things to girls, like boys using the squirting camera on a girl. So the the girls and the women become the victims often of these, these jokes, these pranks, and they're mean. You know they're mean
0: so there's you know so there's a hierarchy reinforcement that that that's in there as part of this this appropriation of novelties
1: for sure and there's also kind of a bro culture you know so men prank each other and often you know giving them sexually suggestive things you know boob cups and I say boob cups, um, you know, things like that. So they can become kind of risque, um, but those are also uh, obviously um, meant to denigrate women in some way, yeah.
0: Yeah, so crap is not all fun and games. Um, now, no. several times, several times you've alluded to the things you found at Hagley. So let me ask you about that, uh, how, how we did as a research library. Oh my
1: gosh, I mean, I'm such a, such a fan girl of the Hagley. And I have to say that, um, that every chapter of this book has something from the Hagley, either as an illustration or draws from an important source of material. So I mentioned trade catalogs and the trade catalogs I use, like I said, date all the way back to the 1870s. But also, I was looking at things from like 1950s Japan, um, from the Hagley uh, industry literature. Um, So, you know, trade publications were really useful in giving me everything from statistics of production and consumption to marketing strategies. I mentioned Henry Bunting, who was this marketing professional at the turn of the century. Um, You have several of his books on, um, different advertising and marketing, um, you know, approaches and philosophies, things about five and dime stores, um, both catalogs, merchandise catalogs, and, um, how-to books about how to run, um, five and dime stores, correspondence, business correspondence. I, I, used a little bit from the, um, Soda House Manuscripts for um, the chapter on gadgets and thinking about intellectual property and um, sort of home-based small home-based businesses. Um, You know, there's a ton of other stuff, but in in also graphic, you know, graphics in here too. Um, So I should say that it's not just Hagley's collection that's amazing, but that it's supported by such amazing professionals. So the collection can you know, can be its own thing, but it's only as useful as people can access it. And so the librarians there are just you know fantastic. So it's a, it's a great place to work.
0: Oh, gee whiz, there's, 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 our, there's our ad for the sponsor uh, <laughs> there. Um, well, I mean, one thing you also mentioned in your acknowledgements is that you yourself have an extensive crap related research uh, collection. Uh, how did you accumulate that?
1: Well, flea markets, eBay, um, you know, here and, here and there, um, antique malls. And, and I, sh- I should say, you know, we're sort of joking about it, but I find, I find that, I mean, I used those, let me back up. A better way to say this is I consider them artifacts. And so to me, they are useful as sources. They're useful as information. And so I'll just give one example, and that's in in my chapter on mass-produced collectibles. It was very important for me to acquire some of these things, to acquire collectible plates. How were they packaged? what, what are they like materially? Are they cheap? Are they actually well made? What did the stamps like on look like on the back? How were they the design printed on the front? Um, same thing for, I mean this sounds kind of funny, but beanie babies. Like if I'm going to make the argument that these are kind of crappy things and false collectibles or not false collectibles. they're collectibles but but created a false value, I need to understand like, what they are like materially, how they were made, how they um, compared to other things. So, so having this kind of stuff at hand, in addition to the literature um, that supports this is really important, um, yeah.
0: I, mean, I suppose also having the, the catalogs which advertise them and have prices. And then if you can spot these items in an antique mall and there are the prices that they're being sold for right there. Yeah. There's, your, there's your information as to what the, what's happened.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and of course, one of the points you make is that these collectibles are marketed as an investment. You know, you, right. you buy things and at, at some point down the road and by and large, you say, this is not the case. And there's right. your, your evidence there. Right.
1: Right. And so and having the material thing also helps me to better understand the disparity between the thing itself and how it is marketed. And that's true for the things, the contemporary things I look at and true for things in the past. I mean, thanks to eBay, um, eBay to me is like this huge research trove um, because I don't necessarily buy everything I find, but even for the older catalogs from the 1880s, 1890s, those merchandise catalogs, I can often find you know, a similar object on eBay to what was advertised in these catalogs. And I can kind of tell what the difference, what is between the puffery and the actual thing, the promise and the reality, which has been really helpful too.
0: Which of course brings you back to the point at the beginning, which is material culture. That yeah. while you rely on, on, on print sources and everything like that, in the end, you try to bring it back to the object itself to understand. Mm-hmm what it was and what it could do and what it couldn't do
1: yeah and i think putting those objects in in conversation with consumer psychology so to me in the end this is really a history of consumer psychology so it's not just the crappy stuff but why we've been so attracted to it over time because you know it's important to acknowledge that consumers have agency we didn't have to buy this stuff over time we don't have to buy it or accumulate it today, but we do. Um, and and why. And so unpacking and answering that why question to me has been really important and at the forefront of, of this project.
0: And I'll just say as a reader, you see that answered in different ways for different mm-hmm. types of crap. Because it's, right. it's not just it's not just a blanket. There are particular reasons why Elvis is sitting on your shelf,
1: <laughs> right. you know,
0: rather rather than the multi tool, which right. is probably in a drawer someplace. It is you know, not to be touched for, for until the time comes to move or or, or clean right. things
1: out. Or I need to like open a beer. Like I, that's when I use my multi tool. Is when I need to like a can opener or something.
0: Right, <laughs> that, those those rare moments when you actually need right. to open a can with a, with, a, with a with a metal device and all that. Well, um. I, I do hope that someday when you decide that your material that your collection on crap is too large for you and you don't know what to do with all that crap that you'll remember that hagley collects crap as some people might might call it mm-hmm. because for us crap is history
1: Right. And,
0: uh, it's something great to have uh, have with us so um, we can't possibly get to the full depth of uh, the book uh, I try to keep these at 40 minutes or right right there great. Uh, but you all should go buy it it's a great book. It's wonderful stories. You will find uh, personal examples of all that in your kitchen cabinets, in the bottom drawers, in your garage, in your attic or places like that. So it's a book that people can relate to. Um, so Wendy, thank you for, for joining thank us. you. Help go around and buy it. All right, and, thank you. It's the
1: perfect present to get for the person who has everything.
0: There you are. And of <laughs> course the holidays are coming. And so if you don't know what to get, here you go. Uh, well, thanks, I'm gonna stop recording now.